Our passage this evening is First uh, John chapter 4, verse 9 to 10, which is printed there at the bottom of, in your hand out there. I'll just read it, then I'll pray, then we'll look at God's word. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, and we thank you for the gift of Christmas. And we pray that we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of my favorite uh, films is a film called A Beautiful Mind. Uh, it tells a true story of the mathematician John Nash. Uh, the many highs and lows of his life, uh, from his time as a mathematics student at Princeton University in the U.S. in the late 1940s, uh, to his Nobel Prize win for economics in 1994. Nash was a brilliant but somewhat arrogant and unsocial man. He liked to spend his time um, thinking about equations uh, than being with people. The only person Nash really clicked with uh, who had a genuine connection with Nash is a woman called Alicia Ladd. She was one of the students uh, one of his students when he was teaching at MIT in the 1950s. Nash and Alicia eventually got married, but as time passed, Nash lived more and more within himself, uh, which caused many problems in their marriage and, of course, in his life um, specifically. And yet in all of these problems, Alicia stood by her husband until Nash... <laughs> finally redeemed himself by winning the Nobel Prize in economics. There is a moving scene in the movie, if you've seen it, where Nash is giving an acceptance speech before the Nobel Prize uh, audience. And here's what Nash says uh, in the film. He says this, I have always believed in numbers, in equations, in logic and reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me to the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. I have made the most important discovery of my career, the most important discovery of my life. And it is this. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logic or reasons can be found. And then at that point in the movie, Nash then looks at his dear wife sitting there in the audience. And then he says this to her, I am only here tonight because of you. You are the only reason I am. You are all my reasons. Thank you. If you've seen the movie, then you agree with me that it's a, it's a powerful, it's an emotional, it's a spiritual moment that acknowledges that true happiness in life uh, is not so much a state of being. No, it is relational. True happiness is relational. Nash is saying, as he comes to the end of his life, 
all of his happiness is wrapped up in his wife, who has been there with him through thick and thin, as I said. She has loved and forgiven him through all the ups and downs. And as he says, she is all his reasons for living. He's in fact saying that our love is his happiness. Now, very few of us here, I would imagine, have heard of John Nash, unless you've studied economics or mathematics, or perhaps seen even the film. It may not be your thing, right? And yet I think what John Nash says in the film resonates with us deeply. We all know intuitively, don't we, that happiness in life is not found in the self, but in the other. We all know that we are not enough for our own happiness. I know sometimes people say, you don't need other people to be happy. We hear people say that. But we know deep down that's not true. Uh, We only say that when we are disappointed about something. We need other people. We need others to be happy. Do you remember those dark days of the pandemic, uh, COVID, right? Which you can forget, right? The government was begging everyone to follow the rules, right? Why was that? Well, because our happiness then depended on other people following the rules to keep us safe, right? How others behaved had a huge impact on our health and, of course, our happiness, our joy in life. The bottom line is that we need each other, don't we? Happiness is a loving relationship with others. Now, there's a, that's true, but there's a problem with that, isn't there? Which I'm sure as you hear me say that, you... You're feeling a little uneasy about it. The problem is that all human love, you know, comes up empty. There's a limit to human love. Your wife and children love you, but not without strings attached, right? They expect you to behave yourself, or they will withdraw their affection. But even if your wife or your husband is selfless like Mrs. Nash, or even your children are selfless like Mrs. Nash, Highly impossible, right? But assuming they were, right? One day they won't be there. Death comes to all of us. In the end, all human love comes up empty. It is never enough. So we have a problem, right? On one hand, we we agree with Nash. Happiness is a loving relationship. But then we've got a big issue, don't we? That human love comes up empty. Where can we then find a person who will always love us and has an infinite capacity to satisfy our hearts? That's a fundamental question of life, isn't it? Well, the Bible introduces us to that person. The most amazing thing about the God of the Bible is that he is a person. He's not a force like in Star Wars or some law of nature, he is a person. The God of the Bible speaks, acts, reasons, and relates to us. And most amazingly, this God has become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that the true love we are yearning for has come looking for us. It came that first Christmas, wrapped in the first Of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God giving himself to you to love you forever. And here is how John, one of the followers of Jesus, summarizes God's love for us, which we read in that passage. 
in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 to 10. He says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, appeared among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The Bible is saying there that God loves us. And he has demonstrated his love to us by sending his own son, Jesus, to give us a new loving relationship with God that never fails. Now, different words mean different things to different people, don't I? So if I went around here and I said, Rishi Sunak, right? Someone here who's a big fan of Rishi, right, might say, yeah, strong leader. That's what comes to your mind. Strong leader, direction, right, leading us forward, getting the economy right. You might be of that sort of thinking, right? Another person might just, must start laughing, right? Might say, untrustworthy. Doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't got long in the office. He's panicking. Different things mean, I'm not taking a view. I'm just saying different words mean different things to different people. And so when we hear that God loves us, we have to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean that God loves us? Is it sort of Justin Bieber type love? Is it just sort of political type love? Well, what is it? Well, the Bible here is using a specific word for love called agape. And it means that God loves you with a pure, unconditional, eternal love. That's like nothing we have ever experienced in our day-to-day life. You know, our usual experience of love is like the story of a young girl who gave her boyfriend a picture of herself. And on the back of that picture, she wrote him a short note on the back of the picture. She said, I love you more than life itself. I am yours forever. Love always, Janet. And then at the bottom, she wrote, P.S., if we ever break up, I want this picture back. It's the only one I have. <laughs> That's human love, isn't it? But God's love is not like Janet's love. It's not a love with strings attached. No. God doesn't love us like that. That's not agape. Agape really is getting at the point that God himself is love. And John later on in this letter makes that point. God is love. Love is not something, not love is God, but God is love. Right? In other words, love is not something God does. Love is who God is, right? How do we know this? Well, because God is a relationship. The God of the Bible is not like the pagan gods. He's a person and he's a relationship. It's not even like the, the idol of Islam or, or Buddhism or other systems you may, uh, you may be familiar with. No. The God introduced to us in the Bible at the core of his being is a relationship. What do I mean by that? It means that the Bible teaches us that God is Trinity, you see. He is three eternal persons in one essence. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The three persons are one God, not three gods. One. It's one God in three persons. Now, the question is, what is the glue that binds these three persons? Well, the glue that binds these three eternal persons is agape. Love. The inner life of God is a life, is, is a life of three persons loving each other without strings attached. God is full of loving pleasure and delight 
within himself. And as the Bible says, God is love. In other words, to be with God is to be with a person whose inner being and essence oozes out love for you that never rends. God is always loving and enjoys giving love. It's a love like you've never experienced. You see, the problem is, though, and the reason we haven't experienced that love, is that we cannot receive and enjoy this love of God. Why? Well, because God is holy. We cannot share life with God because we are sinners. Now, I know saying that all of us here are sinners offends some of us. Uh, you, you, don't, you do good things. You, you, you do many good things. I know you love your family. I know you don't drink and drive. I know you pay all your taxes. And yes, I know you are not Hunter Biden. You live very responsible lives. And yet the Bible says all of us are sinners. Why is that? Well, because even when we do good things, we are still more failures before God. We fail to meet the perfect and holy standard of God. All human beings are more failures before God because we do not treat God as God deserves to be treated. God created us. He's our Father, but we don't respect God. None of us do. God is perfectly holy, good, righteous, kind, and full of majesty. But we do not put him first. We only live for ourselves. And if we're being honest, we often live, we often treat God like he's a fool. We don't honor him. We don't honor the God who created us. And all of us here know this is true for each one of us. Uh, we all know in our hearts that every day we disobey what God commands us to do. Who here can honestly say they have never told a lie? Who can say they have never disobeyed their parents when they were growing up? Who can say they are always faithful to in their relationship? Who here can say has never had a lustful thought? Who has never taken something that did not belong to them? All of these things are serious before God. They break the law of God because they break the Ten Commandments. Which means, if that's the standard, and it is the standard God has set, it means all of us are guilty before God. But it's worse than that. Sin, you see, is not just something we do, it's our identity. Just as we can't change our skin, we can't stop sinning, it is our spiritual skin, if you like. We sin because... At the fundamental core of every human being is that we are cut off from the holy life of God. The Bible calls it being dead in sin. We are all born into this world spiritually dead. But the good news of Christmas, which is why we are here, is that God has intervened for us. God the Son, Jesus, came that first Christmas to give us a new life by dying on the cross for us. You see, the wages we have earned from God for our sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. We, we are all heading to hell when we die. That's the reality. But God doesn't want us cut off from his love. So God the Son, Jesus, came that first Christmas on a mission to suffer the punishment for our sin. And so John here says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. 
In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Not that you have ever loved God. But that he loved you. He loved us. And he took the initiative. So he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? That word propitiation. Well, it means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath against sinners and turns it into our favor. Jesus was born into this world to do this very thing. He was born to die on the cross for us. And, and he did. And his death on the cross was not by accident. He came on a mission to lay down his life for us. Now, at 11 a.m. on 24th of March, 2018, a terrorist stormed a supermarket in Trebes. You may remember that in France, in 2018. He shot dead two people and took others hostage. A bit like what Amos did on 7th of October. But on a smaller scale, of course. When this terrorist broke through that market, police started negotiating for the release of hostages, right? And one of the officers that day was Arnold Beltran. This officer offered to take the place of the final hostage. Now, after a three-hour standoff, the terrorists killed Beltran. Eventually, the police stormed the supermarket and they killed the terrorists. An an autopsy was done, and it revealed that Betram had sustained four bullet wounds. But that's not what killed him. He died from stab wounds to his neck. You see, he fought. This is a brave man. This is a selfless man. And he died as a selfless man for that, in exchange, of course, having already taken the place of the final hostage. He laid down his life. As we think about Bertram's self-sacrifice, it resembles what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to die in our place so that we might have a loving life with God. But think about that, though, the example. Because in the true essence, when you think about Bertram's death, actually it falls far short of what Jesus has done. See, Bertram died for a good person, a final hostage you deserve to be released. But Jesus has not come to die for good people. Jesus dying is more like dying for the terrorist than for the hostage. Right? Jesus has come to, to die for his enemies. He has come to die for people who hate his guts. People who walk on the other side of the road when they see God coming. This is the weight of God's love to us. Jesus came that first Christmas to willingly go to the cross to suffer the punishment of God that we deserve. Jesus is God dying in our place. Now, most people know that Jesus died. Everyone here, I'm sure, knows that Jesus died on the cross. What most people do not know is that is what Jesus was doing when he was dying on the cross. Jesus was being punished by God for your sin. That's why Jesus died. When he was on the cross, God was pouring on Jesus all the punishment that you deserve for your sin. You see, instead of letting God visit you with his wrath in hell, God the Son gave himself up as a sacrifice that absorbed the wrath of God meant for you. You know, on some underground stations, you may often hear the announcement, mind the gap, right? Now, they put guardrails now, so you, you're not too worried when they say that, right? But sometimes some of the some didn't have those 
fencing, and it was a serious thing. Mind the gap, right? The point is that if you miss the gap, you may end up falling through to your death. Well, Jesus came not to warn you, mind the gap. It was much more than that. Jesus came to stand in that gap so that you can be rescued from the danger of your sin against God. The wrath of God is powerful and just. It cannot be withdrawn by our holy God. The the sword of God's judgment must fall on all sinners. But the good news is that Jesus stepped in for us to take the spiritual bullet of God's wrath. He placed his body in between us and the wrath of God. This is why Jesus, when he was dying, uh, the earth was dark for three hours. It symbolized that God was pouring on Jesus all the punishment we deserve. And then when Jesus died, he cried out, it is finished. What was finished? Well, it meant he had paid the full penalty for your sin so that you can live with God again. And that's why John says here, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The Apostle John is saying, God is offering to forgive your sin and give you a new loving life with God to be that person to you whose love never runs out. Now, every year, another man called John gives his wife Sue lovely flowers every year. And, on the, and as he gives Sue those lovely flowers, it has, it's rich, it, 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 there's a note in the flowers that says, my love for you grows. It grows every year, right? Now, in 2012, John passes away after 46 years of marriage. So he's dead. Ten months later, his wife receives flowers addressed to her from John. And of course, she's very angry about this. And so she calls the florist to complain about the mistake. What's going on? Is this some sort of sick joke? You know, John has died. The florist says, no, 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 it's not a joke. You see, before John died... Your husband prepared for many years and asked us to continue sending you flowers on every day of your anniversary. And so as Sue hears this, and I think most women, if they're hearing this, they're widows, they would, they would be in tears, isn't it? Because it turns out that the card is really from John <laughs> via the florist, Right? And now as she receives this card, though, it has different words written on it. The words now written on it are, my love for you is eternal. And of course, she's very comforted by that. Now, maybe every wife sat here is thinking, I wish my husband was like that, right? (laughs) But listen to me, ladies. The good news of Christmas is that God is offering us greater love than that. God is not dead like John. He's alive. Jesus is alive. God came in Jesus to give himself to you as the eternal bouquet of love by his death on the cross. He came not to give you red roses, but to give you his red blood on that cross. 
Not in a vase, but on a cross. You see, the true love of God in Jesus is a love you have always longed for. This love is the answer to your inner longing for perfection in people. You look at people and you're so frustrated by them. But the answer is not to look to people, it's to look to Jesus, who brings that love that never fails. The love of God is the answer to your inner longing for unconditional love. You, each one of us wants a person who loves us, right? For us, who accepts our debtiness, who knows all about our secret sins and doubts and fears, and they still love us. We want someone who not only forgives us now, but has forgiven us up front. And they forgive us every wrong, no matter how much we mess up. They meet us 100%. And they declare us perfect forever. We can't get that love from our parents. We can't get that love from the best spouse in the world. We can only get it from Jesus. The good news of Christmas is that you can have this amazing unconditional love of God in Jesus. If you truly surrender your life to Jesus today. Right now, today, if you cry out to God and say to him, Lord, I'm a moral failure. I am a sinner. I see now that I cannot save myself. I see that if I carry on in my sin, I'm carrying on in rebellion. I'll continue to live without your true love in my life. And I'll be robbing myself of true happiness. And only that, I will perish in hell forever when I die. I see that nothing I do for you can save me. I am not good enough for you. I see that. My best works are like filthy rags before you. So I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting what you have done. That you came that first Christmas and you died on the cross for my sin in Jesus. And so I wholeheartedly repent of my sin. I surrender my heart to you. Not as a tick box. I truly surrender to you. I want to receive your love in Jesus today. If you surrender to God like that and you really mean it in your heart, not mouthing off word, if you mean it right now, God will forgive your sin. God will write your name in heaven. All your past sins, present and future, all forgiven, and you become a true Christian. He will give you a brand new heart. We call it regeneration. God will give you a new heart. God will come and live in your heart, and it will satisfy all your deepest longings. I'm not saying you're not going to suffer, but even in your deep, you will suffer because life is full of suffering. But even in your deepest suffering, you have the comfort to know that God is with you. You can say truly now, not looking to another human being as John Nash did that time, but you can say looking to God with full confidence that I am only in this world because of you. You are the only reason I am. You are all my reasons. Thank you. Amen.